straw, ash, bone, and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All these uh, books surrounding you here are used to research the show, and the individual to my right, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be uh, directly quoted from uh, these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I hope everyone's enjoying the uh, festive season, perhaps uh, preparing for something special. Yes. Aren't uh, you making some uh, candy for Halloween? Honey nut butter candy from a family recipe, but only a little. I'm not going to bother making it for trick-or-treaters or wait down by the gate with a bowl of treats again. No one will come here. Down the hill there seem to be lots of trick-or-treating, but no one comes up this hill. Not to this house. Uh, I thought you had a few last year. Those were just teenagers coming here on a dare. Oh, we're a legend-tripping destination. That's great. Well, I'm glad you like it. And do you think any parents are going to bring children to a house with armed guards out front? Just because they're in costume doesn't mean parents want their kids around them. I think it's festive. I'm sure some listeners would agree, too. I, I'm uh, having uh, Halloween costumes uh, made for uh, our guards, Mr. Kushner and Chornyi. Uh, copies of 19th century Cossack uniforms. I think they like the idea of being Ukrainian. They liked the tailor coming over for measurements because you turned the whole thing into a vodka party. They'd never even been inside the house. I was just being hospitable. I saw the pictures you gave the tailor. It looks like costumes from the Wizard of Oz to me. Those guards who guard the Wicked Witch's castle. They're not green. Well, the long coats and the fur hats. I think the film hats have more of a Buckingham Palace style, the, the taller ones. These are short, authentic Cossack Kubankas. They need a flying monkey, but I'm not dressing up as that. I kind of throw off the Cossack. Thing. And I don't really like the idea of hanging around with those men even if kids would come up here. They were friendly enough to you when you came up to the house for the tailor. <laughs> they were drunk. Well, you don't have to hand out treats, you know. And you, you do have some time still to think this all through, so I think it's <gasps> I, time to... I could be Dorothy. Maybe Mother has my old costume, but I'd need a burned broom. Oh, I could take care of that. We'll have a bonfire. You remember what happened last bonfire. Your hand is barely healed. We could throw some nuts on the fire for fortune-telling, like in the old days. Oh, well, maybe it's not a terrible idea. Oh, well, we'll see. Anyway, uh, to get started... Uh, episode 56, Spook Shows. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I uh, started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. And Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors. We have a special offer for those who join this month at the $4 and up level, I'll be sharing videos of my presentation at the Rural Gothic Conference on uh, foreign language folk horror films. It's nearly an hour long with clips from uh, more than 50 films that would make nice seasonal viewing. We've had some new expenses arise for the show production, so if you've ever considered supporting us, this would be a great month to help us out and to start enjoying the rewards we offer on Patreon. Uh, more on that at the end of the episode. A new high in blood, 
curdling horror. Give you a thrilling new idea in Spook Show. We double dare you to see this double and put their cold, clammy hands around your throat and whisper things in your ears. Live What you're hearing is from A Lost World, advertisements for the old midnight spook shows that used to take place in movie theaters across the country. We're picking up a thread, in a sense, of uh, last October's show about unruly American Halloween celebrations, uh, those of the teens and 20s, as it was uh, the uh, 1930s that spook shows got their start, lasting all the way into the uh, mid-70s when they sadly disappeared. In their heyday in the 50s and 60s, spook shows could uh, also be unruly, as screaming crowds in their teens and 20s, crowded seats and groaningly full balconies in theaters, uh, not just on Halloween, but most any Friday or Saturday night throughout the year. Paired with a film screening, ideally a horror movie, but not always, and mostly forgotten B-movies, spook shows offered live performances featuring a mix of stage illusion, vaudeville-style comedy, some genuine scares, if you were lucky, and later, a bit more horror, gore, and titillation. The spook show grew out of Houdini's performances demonstrating the tricks used by fraudulent spiritualists, a movement we dedicated two shows to back in October of 2018, We're talking here about things like uh, spirits created with uh, phosphorescent paint on cheesecloth or uh, empty slates suddenly displaying spirit writing. Houdini died in 1926, but magicians following in his footsteps, like Harry Blackstone, took to dedicating entire shows to illusions of this sort. Blackstone even called these... Spook Nights. The famous magician, Howard Thurston, who died in 1936 before the uh, phenomenon had really gathered steam, also occasionally worked this sort of show into his schedule, presenting them at midnight, setting a uh, pattern for all the uh, spook shows to later follow. When the vaudeville houses were converted to cinemas in the 1920s, there were suddenly fewer venues for magicians to uh, ply their trade, Unless, that is, they presented their shows later at night after cinemas had finished their screenings. Venue owners welcomed the extra revenue and the midnight time slot was a nice fit for the mood of spirit summoning tricks. The first magician to really make a career of this was Elwyn Peck, who performed under the name Elwyn, uh, hyphenating his first name, that is. Beginning in 1933 through about 1940, he held what he called spook parties, advertising his show as being too scary to admit children, but making up for this in ticket sales by insisting that women, and uh, I'm sorry, but you're going to be hearing some sexist talk throughout this uh, episode because uh, that's how people were then. Anyway, um, he insisted that women must have male escorts. His uh, ad copy further encouraged sales, saying... Make up a party. You'll be too afraid to go home alone. Which is an angle employed in advertising spook shows for uh, decades to come. His act made prominent use of a disembodied talking skull and other floating objects moved by the invisible hands of black-clad and carefully lit stage assistants. But the real payoff was that universal feature of all spook shows... The Blackout. (laughs) During blackouts, uh, when the lights would suddenly be shut off for several minutes... Uh, Ghosts, skeletons, uh, clutching hands, and various monsters painted with phosphorescent paint on black cloth would not only be floated on the stage by those uh, black-clad assistants, but more impressively, down theater aisles. Even better, they'd be dangled quite close to uh, audiences' heads from long black poles, or they might be rigged in advance to drop from the ceiling on cue. 
These effects were intensified when black lights hit the market in 1938. A bright flash from an onstage flash pot would also often be cubed for the moment of blackout to help blind audiences to any dim forms of black-clad assistants shuffling around out there in the theater. Tactile effects were also part of it. Black ropes fixed with threads or wet strips of black cloth were stretched across the seating and run over the heads of the crowd as they imagined spiders or slimy tentacles attacking them. Or cold water might be shot from water pistols or rice or unpopped uh, popcorn tossed out to increase the panic, all accompanied by weird music and sound effects naturally. Leading into the blackout, magicians would warn the audience of what they might experience, the spiders, the tentacles, or other horrors, so that uh, imaginations were fully fired once the lights went out. Another trick would be for a uh, costume performer, often portraying a gorilla or perhaps a maniac holding a decapitated head, would begin to dash from the stage at the moment of blackout so it could be easily imagined plowing through the rows of seats out there in the darkness. And I also find an account mentioning tossing cabbages out to the dark as a stand-in for heads from decapitated bodies. Another way to put those spooks right in the middle of things during blackouts was to plant them there. Performers with makeup, invisible in normal light but phosphorescent in the dark, would be stationed in seats throughout the theater. A money-saving trick, often used here, would be to hand out free tickets to kids who would be painted up before the show. A writer for the Detroit Free Press, Jim Fitzgerald, in a 1980 column recalled being one of these lucky kids back in 1938. He hadn't realized what the stuff being applied to his face was before the show. The lights went off, and I glowed in the dark. I wasn't sitting next to a ghost. I was a ghost. I didn't catch on until a woman leaned into my face and said, My God, kid, what happened to you? Then I saw my friend shining in other rows, and I realized I was in show business. I waved my ghostly hands in the air and said boo and laughed menacingly. People were so frightened they giggled. It was marvelous. In preparing audiences for the blackout, the magician also had to keep in mind the specter of mass panic, as blackouts could be dangerous. Audience members were told to hold on to each other or the seat in front of them to keep the people from stampeding to the doors. Theater owners weren't exactly oblivious to all this, and some would remember fire codes and uh, safety hazards when discussing the blackout with the show producers. The spookers would uh, push for darkening the theater as much as possible, and if the venue insisted on visible fire exits, a good producer had on hand cardboard covers to cover those uh, lighted signs, but with the words exit at least dimly visible in luminous paint. The first thing a producer would always check when inspecting venues was to see how close to complete blackness they could get the room. And insurance for spook shows, as you might have guessed, was extremely expensive, and many companies just took their chances. The earliest spook shows tended to be fairly tame, attended by older crowds, generally somewhere between 20 and 40, and uh, featuring many not particularly spooky standard magician's tricks, or even short talks on hypnosis or uh, some kind of mystical subjects. Later shows grew more sensational and drew younger audiences, particularly after World War II. One of the artists to push that envelope was George Marquis, who dubbed his show The Amazing Dr. Marquis and his Horror Scopes, because... uh, Newspaper astrology columns had just begun proliferating in the uh, 1930s. It was uh, a thing, that is, uh, horoscopes. And the word horror was in there because it was also somehow cutting edge as it wasn't used before 1931 to uh, describe this genre of film or fiction. I'm not sure what astrology has to do with anything, but Marquisac did lean a bit more into horror and sensationalism. An act called The Mad Doctor's Dream involved a trick buzzsaw cutting off a victim's arm, 
Another involved a female assistant laid out like a corpse before her praying sister. Uh, rising from the dead, she uh, turns to reveal her previously unseen side, made up to look like a masculine Satan. Marquis recalls it all in a 1970 article in uh, Topps magazine, The Magician's Trade Journal. She performed a routine of sexy maneuvering. It appeared as though she was being seduced by the Satan character. When the sister attempted to rescue the living dead, the Satan boy tore off her dress. More sex, and the crowd liked it. There are also references in uh, ads for the show in 1942 that promise... Forbidden revelation from a Turkish harem. And an act called... Beauty and the Bath. See Tali, sexational dancer, disrobe and bathe in the mystic shower before your very eyes. So, uh, things were heating up by the 1940s. Marquis also recalls crowds tripling the capacity of certain venues and a... Balcony, actually sagging down under... Dangerous weight. But by 1957, Marquis had gotten out of the business, married his seventh wife, and, according to the uh, Topps editor, ruined his career with alcohol, botching a make-or-break tour with uh, Harry Blackstone, who saw Marquis as a potential protege. He died in 1980, and, according to this uh, article, the eccentric magician asked that... His remains be cremated and the ashes placed in small containers and distributed to magic enthusiasts. All except his skull, which was to be preserved. Not sure what part of that actually came to pass, but please do let me know if you happen to have his skull. Quake, quiver, shake, shiver at Dr. Ness horror show. Mad House of Mystery. See Dracula's daughter, ghastly, ghostly, gorgeous, in person, the spirit of calm, king of gorillas. See the goddess of voodoo, a zombie nightmare with hexapia. Gals, ghosts, gorillas will scare the yell out of you. This ad from 1953 is typical of those advertising Bill Neff's spook show, running from 1945 to 1957 and dubbed Madhouse of Mystery. Uh, scaring the yell out of you was a line that caught on and was used by all the shows. By this point in 1953, the nods to uh, horror films and horror characters were a part and parcel of the spook show. A typical Neff show would begin with a magician emerging from a mummy case, a painted backdrops, complimented scenes set in graveyards, haunted castles, and zombie-haunted jungles, vampires who were represented by Dracula's daughter, a uh, female assistant who would enter a magician's sword box to survive an assault of uh, wooden stakes, substituting for the usual uh, thrusting swords. In 1940, Neff took out some uh, interesting help-wanted ads, for instance, from uh, Fort Myers News Press on February 10th. Wanted, beautiful girl, to be burned alive on stage of the Arcade Theater in Dr. Neff's Madhouse of Mystery on Wednesday, February 16th for one midnight performance only. Good salary paid. Report to Dr. Neff in person. The illusion involved the volunteer laying down on a slab with sides that folded up into a sort of coffin, and an arrangement of gas jets produced the cremation fire, and uh, a hidden mechanism allowed the life performer to be switched out for a flaming skeleton. I don't know if Neff invented this gag, but it was well known as the sensational centerpiece of his show. To add that uh, extra exoticizing touch, uh, while making it all completely offensive to modern tastes, uh, Neff advertised the stunt as sati, that is, the act of self-immolation once practiced by the newly widowed of India who would throw themselves on the funeral pyres of their deceased husbands. 
Neff's Madhouse of Mystery was uh, fairly long-lived from 1945 to 1952 and was also one of the highest profile and most uh, popular ghost shows. While other Ghostmasters only attempted one-night appearances, uh, even in bigger cities, uh, Neff could pack houses for a full week. Street and Smith, publishers of Astounding Stories, even turned Neff into a comic book hero, uh, featured in Ghost Breakers, which ran between 1948 and 49 with stories like... Dr. Neff chases the jinx from Hoodoo City. And... Dr. Neff confronts the Hangtown Demons. In interviews and promo materials, Neff made much over sharing an Indiana hometown with the, the actor Jimmy Stewart, who was either a high school classmate or a good friend, or possibly even uh, served as magic assistant to a teenage Neff, well, depending on which source you read. Neff uh, also hobnobbed a bit with Bella Lugosi, who made some guest appearances in his ghost shows in 1947. Uh, in which, uh, according to the press, Lugosi performed brief monologues from Dracula. Under a weird green light. The only person who seems not to have been impressed with the magician was his son James, who is quoted in a 2010 bio of Neff, Pleasant Nightmares, uh, named for the magician's uh, farewell catchphrase. James recalled... He was the most unlikable character I ever met. I was really afraid of him, and I dreaded him coming to town. According to James, the master of the madhouse of mystery was a mean and frequent drunk, who became... Totally absorbed and engrossed in his voodoo stuff, and that became his religion and his life. Sounds like an all-American Faust to me, and success, dark powers, tragedy. To return to Bela Lugosi for a moment, not only did he make guest appearances in Neff's shows, but he also dabbled a bit in productions of his own. In 1947, there was something called A Nightmare of Horror, advertised as starring... Dracula! The Batman. Some versions of the show featured Lugosi reading from The Telltale Heart, uh, blurbed on posters by radio personality Walter Winchell as... The most electrifying performance I have ever witnessed. Articles also mention Lugosi hypnotizing someone playing the Frankenstein monster. And in 1950 through 51, another incarnation... The Bell Lugosi Horror and Magic Show featured Dr. Montez, the weird magician, performing feats described as out of this world. Igor the monster in a death struggle with the Batman. Vampire maidens being put through voodoo trials. Lugosi himself will operate his bloody guillotine and a beautiful girl will be burned alive. Uh, tip of the hat to Neff for the last, I guess. Ads for the show depicted a vampire's eye, and readers were invited to breathe on the ink to see if it turned red. If so, you won a free pass. Spooks, ghosts, flying reptiles, giant spiders, human vampires, and phenomenal luminous creations that actually leave the stage and float over and through the audience. Strong men shiver. Weak men and women faint. Can you take it? Have you good strong nerves? Are you afraid of cat? If you are, stay home. So runs a 1949 advertisement for Dr. Silkini's show, the Asylum of Horrors, a particularly long-running production beginning way back in 1933 and running into the early 60s. Dr. Silkini in this show was the creation of two Ohio impresarios, Wyman Baker and his adopted brother Jack. It seems that uh, Wyman would more often, but not always, uh, play the uh, MC, Dr. Silkini, uh, a name inspired by a Dr. Cardini, a uh, card trick master, a hero to the magician during his 
teenage years when much of his own routine revolved around a trick walking stick from which silk handkerchiefs could be pulled, hence the silk and silkini. And uh, not only could both of the bakers uh, play silkini, but by 1953 they'd franchised the show and had seven crews crisscrossing the country under that name. They also amped up their show by having not only the traditional finale blackout, but two or three throughout the show. The most uh, famous segment of the Dr. Silkini productions featured the Frankenstein monster, uh, but there was also an Egyptian act with harem girls and oddly pirate-themed substitution trunk illusion and a stunt in which a needle and ribbon would be passed through the stomach of a volunteer, the uh, white ribbon turning blood red as it emerged. And for this one, stooges were planted in the balcony and would uh, feed the audience's hysterical reaction, uh, screaming that they were going to be sick and dropping cornflakes on spectators below. The Frankenstein act involved a performer costumed as the monster, rising from the slab to the accompaniment of thunder and lightning, and then strangling Igor, uh, in this case a hunchback mad doctor in kind of werewolf makeup, it looks like, the uh, monster drops his victim and then turns to lumber off stage just as the lights are killed. <laughs> Lugosi touring as Dracula and Sokini's Frankenstein monster, who was made up exactly like the Karloff monster, were great hooks for spook show sales. When uh, Silkini added the Frankenstein skit in 1941, his profits instantly shot up to over $3,000 nightly. Universal's lawyers took note of the uh, baker's uh, Frankenstein bit, but the show somehow emerged from the dispute unscathed, and by 1949, they were advertising this monster as... Direct from Hollywood. And it was almost true, as they had now added the actor Glenn Strange to the cast, the uh, performer who portrayed the monster in uh, three films from uh, 1944 to 48, once uh, Karloff had stepped out of those boots. By uh, 1948, another option for the monster presented itself. Don Post founded his uh, mask company, producing the uh, first line of realistic monster masks, naturally including uh, Frankenstein's creation. By 1950, I uh, find articles describing the monster's role in Silkini's shows being played by a masked 18-year-old whose acting chops were probably limited to him standing six foot five inches. Out of the depths of darkness rises Garganta, the true king of monsters. He's on his way alive in person. To scare the yell out of you. Beginning in 1956 until about 1965, the Baker's shows featured a performer costumed as Garganta, probably hoping the act would be confused with the actual gorilla, Gargantua, exhibited by the Ringling Brothers throughout the 1940s. The Baker's promotions were rich in gimmickry. They would uh, hire stooges to protest outside the show to gin up interest. Uh, create small improvised graveyards in empty lots around town with uh, advertising copy on the headstones. And of course, there were these uh, radio ads. A real dead body is given away to some lucky person at every performance. <laughs> Don't get too excited. The dead body was a frozen chicken. I hope it's become clear that spook show folks were basically carnies with all the uh, unsavoriness that this implies, and public reaction to the shows paralleled sometimes the 1950s moral panic over horror comics. In a uh, 1950 article from uh, the Times Colonist from Victoria in British Columbia, we hear a bit about the not-suitable-for-children content that was sometimes improvised during Silkini sketches. To a boy with a crew cut, Silkini quipped, What happened to you? Was your mother scared by a fuller brush man? After feeling the shoulder pads in the jacket of still another boy, he exclaimed, 
Well, you wear your falsies high up. A 1956 article in Pennsylvania's Delaware County Daily Times talks about a gang fight breaking out among juvenile delinquents lining up to see the uh, Silkini show. In which three were injured and two arrested as 200 teenagers battled. Also mentioning that the police... We're holding for investigation a 10-year-old boy who was arrested as he pounced on the back of Detective Taylor at the fight scene. Alongside the uh, tussle in the street, uh, the article reports on what seems to be regarded as uh, a corrupting influence on the youth. The mayor said today that his office and the police department had received complaints from parents of children who had attended the show charging obscenity and salacious language. And then there's an angry 1956 uh, letter to the editor from the uh, Press and Sun Bulletin in uh, Binghamton, New York, which complains... Perhaps if this man were entertaining a group of men at a stag party, his suggestive and immoral jokes might be tolerated, though I doubt that some which he pulled off would be accepted even then. But to come before a mixed audience, and children and teenagers at that, and be allowed to use the material he presented, he should be chastised. How can we expect to combat juvenile delinquency if our teenagers are exposed to this kind of filth? We can't advertise what the mummy does when he grabs beautiful slave girls and the lights go out, but wow! A show. Beware of the vampire people who drink human blood. Beautiful girls will be sacrificed to bloodthirsty, inhuman creatures. Your blood will run cold when you see werewolves, ghouls, and ghosts. We warn you, maybe your tongue and eyes will be whipped out and eaten by mad ghouls. So runs a 1951 ad for a spook show produced by Raymond Corbin, a magician performing under a hyphenated version of his name, Ray Mond. And uh, there's another choice line from that ad copy. All undertakers and gravediggers free. But Corbin was also good with gimmicks like this. Uh, another stunt from 1953 involves an ad offering... Reward for escaped gorilla from voodoo show. Gorilla becomes aroused at the sight of beautiful girls. This is because he has been trained to capture girls right from the audience. Corbin pushed the envelope on stage with his Beauty and the Beast act, involving uh, this gorilla menacing a scantily clad woman dancing to voodoo drums. Uh, It's described in a 1972 article in Topps magazine. The gorilla let out a loud grunt, jumped up and down, and then proceeded to dismember the girl. Ripping off arms and legs, it threw them high into the air, and they fell to the stage with a deadly thump. The whole act was played very quickly. The audiences frequently stopped screaming and were silent in disbelief of what they saw. The girl was on the table, minus arms and legs, and the cloth covering the table was red with dripping blood. There was also an act with another woman dancing to voodoo drums who's transformed into a skeleton, And then came the Mad Doctor finale, described in that same article, uh, one in which a volunteer from the audience was laid out under a menacing, spinning saw. The lights dimmed, the dramatic music grew louder, and the blade was slowly lowered, cutting the volunteer's head. It was the most dramatic moment in the entire show. The two girls dressed as nurses screamed, and Raymond gave out a hideous yell. Then, Raymond grabbed the severed head and ran into the audience up one aisle and down the other. The audience was dumbfounded. Decapitations were always popular in spook shows. Stand by. Interference from Planet 13. Come in. 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 Come in.
if uh, Ray Mon didn't win over audiences by threatening to decapitate them or drink their blood, perhaps threats in the ads for Karakum of Hollywood's um, oddly named Mortuary of 18 Living Nightmares would uh, do the trick. Can it be true that any volunteer will be decapitated with a meat cleaver? See it, hear it, and actually feel it. <laughs> Unbelievable, but true. 13, 14, 15 knives will be driven through the head of any unsuspecting person. If there is any... Karakum, which also happens to be the name of a desert in Central Asia, was the stage name for a turban-bedecked uh, Polish magician, Władysław uh, Michaluk, who by the 1970s would promote himself as a hypnotist specializing in stop-smoking cures. But along the way, the feats of magic promised in Karakum's shows got even stranger, eventually including the mystical materialization of celebrities, including James Dean and Elvis Presley. Lady Godiva on a white horse, drifting in midair. For those who will embarrass easily, blindfolds will be furnished free with peaking hold. In, case you pass out, you're in, in 1961, Karakum came up with a particularly shocking ad campaign. Regurgitated in horror. Volunteers will be thrown off the stage one piece at a time. Direct from Brazil, alive on stage. Cannibals of Curitiba. Smell and feel your flesh sizzle and sputter when being burned alive. See and gasp as your stomach is sliced open and slithery intestines and other slimy guts are ripped out. This one turned out to be a bit much for the residents of the uh, town of uh, Xenia, Ohio. Uh, Dayton's uh, Journal Herald reported, The kids and adults, too, won't be able to witness the regurgitating whores. Scheduled to be presented on the screen of the Xenia Theater next Friday night. The manager of the theater, Nick Condello, announced yesterday that the horror show has been canceled after strong opposition voiced by the city commission, the local ministerial association, and the school administrators. I'm not sure what the problem was. He did, after all, say the show wasn't appropriate for kids under 14. From the on the grave, it's Dr. Evil and his tears of the unknown. Unlike anything you have ever seen before, the theater is turned into a graveyard. Your seats become coffins. Weird creatures sit next to you and put their cold, clammy hands around your throat and whisper things in your ears. Live snakes roam up and down the aisles, and human monsters run loose in the audience and cut off the heads. One of the most colorful characters from this whole colorful cast has got to be Philip Morris, uh, the impresario behind Dr. Evil and his Terrors of the Unknown, which ran from 1959 up to 1975. Morris had an early start in showbiz, working after high school graduation as a publicist and advance man for the cowboy actor and bullwhip artist Lash LaRue in his uh, traveling western show. But his uh, entry into the uh, spook show racket came uh, relatively late in the uh, evolution of that genre. Uh, Considering this, his shows don't seem to have been particularly boundary-pushing. We have a uh, rare example of an actual review of sorts, rather than the usual hype. Um, One for a 1965 show published in the Journal of Biddeford, Maine. uh, And it's a show that seems to have made use of the usual bag of tricks. Dracula, with luminous paint on his wings, swooped three rows into the audience and left little boys limp with wonderful fear. A hunchback chopped off the head of a blonde beauty, then ran into the audience to throw the dripping head to a screaming little girl. Ghosts flew above their heads, monsters ran up the aisles, and snakes, so they thought, crawled at their feet.
But the reviewer is also frank about the youthful audience's reaction to uh, more pedestrian segments of the show. They watched with impatience because they had come to be scared, not to watch basic magic tricks. Eventually, the audience and Dr. Evil are at loggerheads. They yelled and screamed a lot, and Dr. Evil made repeated efforts to quiet them down. He threatened them with no show, and they did stop yelling for a while. This must have happened with other shows that couldn't possibly live up to their own ballyhoo and padded their uh, stage time with uh, well-worn magic routines. But what Morris lacked in uh, production quality, he made up for in quantity of his uh, often dubious uh, creative endeavors. In 1958, he attempted to take his ghost show to South America, but it uh, crashed and burned amid red tape. In his uh, hometown of Charlotte, he was a TV celebrity hosting three different kids' shows with uh, cartoons and his ventriloquist act. And his uh, spook show persona, Dr. Evil, also performed as a TV horror host from 1960 to 68. Uh, Along the way, Morris and his wife opened up a costume business that became his uh, primary focus after quitting the uh, spook shows in the mid-70s. Morris died in 2017, but the store still exists. Obituaries for Morris recount a litany of publicity stunts for the store, including Morris obtaining an elephant from a circus traveling through Charlotte and calling the press for a photo op of him supposedly measuring the animal for a costume. And uh, there's a similar story regarding an eight-foot-tall circus clown. Uh, Lots of stories about Morris appearing in one of his gorilla costumes, including a promotional stunt for a pharmacy in which he ends up arrested by the cops and a similar one involving the Canadian Mounties. By 2002, Morris was claiming that the 1967 Roger Patterson Bigfoot footage was hoaxed using a suit mail-ordered from his catalog. Uh, A highly unlikely claim, given that... uh, baggy, one-size-fits-all suits would have an entirely different look than the uh, figure in the film. Uh, Not to belabor the point, but three years after making this claim, producers of a National Geographic documentary invited Morris to put his money where his mouth was and recreate the footage with someone performing in one of his suits. The resulting footage made for a laughably bad match, so... uh, hoax, within a hoax, I guess you'd say. Then Philip Morris also claimed to have successfully sued the producers of Austin Powers over infringement for their Dr. Evil character, and he was a circus ringmaster, and he had his own radio show at the age of 12, and so on and so forth. Lesson learned, um, never trust a spook show spooker. Dr. Satan and his Shrieks in the Night. Dr. Macabre's nightmare of movie monsters. Imagine seeing almost all the three scariest monsters alive, in person. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Teenage Frankenstein. Daughter of Dracula. The Fly. A man's body... Dr. Macabre's Frightmare of Movie Monsters, as well as Dr. Satan's Shrieks in the Night, and Dr. Jekyll and His Weird Show, and Dr. Dracula's Den of Living Nightmares, all which uh, ran through the uh, mid-50s to mid-60s, were all produced by one man, Joe Karsten. Various magicians were hired to front the shows as needed. They were all somewhat interchangeable and some toured at the same time. Carson was a bitter rival of the Bakers and their Silkini shows until at some point a sort of truce was reached by which uh, Carson booked shows west of the Mississippi and the Bakers east. Joe Carson got a relatively early start in the game in 1945 with something called Atomic Scandals, advertised as offering... Ghost women, weird people, the living dead on stage. Although it seems to have featured standard ghost show stunts, advertisements call it a vaudeville show and seem to emphasize a sort of salacious burlesque angle. 
Though he'd started before the war, Carson strained to capture the youth market as it evolved in the 50s and 60s, mimicking the slang and the growing enthusiasm for science fiction. You can hear this in uh, this copy from 1960. The first living creature from outer space, on stage, in person. See, the death ray disintegrate a live girl cell by cell until she vanishes into thin air. Sixteen daring new acts you have never seen. One thousand one new horrors. Like more fun than anything, man. The uh, space creature trotted out, sported a bubble-like helmet with a brain floating in red liquid, uh, black tights, and silver-painted boots. By the mid-1960s, Carson had teamed up with a young director and Hollywood outsider, Ray Dennis Steckler, offering uh, tweaked versions of Steckler's films featuring segments in... Horror vision. That is, with characters from the film appearing live in the theater and often carrying off wildly screaming female stooges. Carson did this with uh, Steckler's 1964 low-budget monster musical. The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies. And with Steckler's 1966 film... That teenage psycho meets Bloody Mary, filmed in sensational bloody vision. Movie monsters come In 1965, Carson produced a film with director David L. Hewitt, who'd once worked as a magician in one of his spook shows. It was a sci-fi take on the Oz stories called... The Wizard of Mars, starring John... That same year, the two collaborated on a 30-minute film specifically shot to be integrated with live spook show actors. The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, the first movie ever filmed in Hollywood's latest miracle, Fantastic Horror Vision. You'll be petrified as fiendish movie The excuse in this film for the actors to go storming through the theater goes like this. A group of teenage girls are having a pajama party in a haunted house, as one does, but the house also happens to be home to a mad doctor hell-bent on transforming humans into gorillas. He sends a crew of ludicrously and uh, cheaply costumed monsters to capture some experimental subjects, but they fail, so... He resorts to blasting open the movie screen with a handy ray gun. And uh, live actors in what one would hope would be identically ludicrous and cheap costumes rampage through the theater. By all traditional standards, of course, these films I've been describing are all trash, but fun trash. A pajama party was clearly made to be enjoyed as a good-natured camp. But how good-natured were the audiences in those latter days of the spook show. The general feeling among magicians then was that audiences become more unruly and actually too unruly to work with. Raymond Corbin reported uh, how he stopped painting his performers' faces with uh, glow-in-the-dark makeup for blackouts, saying he uh, switched to painting faces on handheld paddles because the kids in the audience kept punching those glowing faces. And as uh, incidents like this piled up, theater owners began demanding higher liability coverage, uh, and it all became unaffordable to show touring on a shoestring. The spook show spirit lingered on only in cases where there was more money, as with William Castle's productions. I'm Vincent Price. And you're invited to my party in the House on Haunted Hill. In 1959, at screenings of House on Haunted Hill, theater owners were supplied with a plastic skeleton to be used in scenes with Price summoning a ghost. It would be uh, cranked out on something like a laundry line over the audience's head, or, uh, according to the promotional materials, seemed to emerge from the picture, hence the term used to advertise the gimmick. Emerge! Castle continued on with stunts like this, with the seats rigged to buzz in the tingler, and nurses stationed in lobbies and all that. But of course, it's not the same. The films were incidental to the live uh, stage action of the spook shows. They weren't running the shows. 
another legacy of the spook show was the midnight screening. It's often said that this uh, practice originated in 1970 with uh, showings of Hodorowski's El Topo in a uh, Greenwich Village theater, but of course, that's not true. Later uh, midnight screenings of the Meraki Horror Picture Show, on the other hand, very much line up with the uh, spook show tradition with their live uh, in-theater stunts and performances. They might even be regarded as its longest live legacy. But there's another candidate that might wear that mantle, uh, ironically one which played a role in killing off the spook show. It began in 1957 when Screen Gems released for broadcast a package of Universal Monster films dubbed Shock Theater. As we've already seen with Dr. Evil, the persona of the spook show MC and late-night horror hosts could be interchangeable. Welcome to Nightmare. And with the advent of hosts like Vampira and Sven Gulli and others, teens could now stay up to watch scary films at midnight alongside off-the-wall live stunts by creepy hosts. And so it was your very own free in-home spook show. And to celebrate that noble breed, the horror host, and close out our show, a bit of the cool ghoul, John Sackerley, Horror host from 1957 to 1960 in Philadelphia and New York, wishing you all, as do Mrs. Carswell and I. Happy Halloween, everybody make the scene. Happy Halloween. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen. We haven't had one of those for a bit. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours I end up putting into each show. Uh, Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive an extra something. This month, it's a video from my presentation on foreign language folk horror films, as I mentioned. Other months, it's the marvelous and rare episodes that we provided a sample of back in September. Other things you can get as Patreon awards, a bone and sickle candle featuring the skeletal remains of St. Notborga, uh, two different mystery kits, each with unique offerings, Uh, my Krampus book, and the uh, show soundscapes you hear in the background. I want to thank our new patrons, uh, Patrick, Bart uh, Wiatik, I hope that's how you pronounce it, and Andrea Meyer, and to uh, thank uh, Bridget Case and Grackles for upping their pledges. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandsickle.com. There you will find links to our Patreon, Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with links to materials in the program, including uh, links to the spook show samples we use, which are from uh, Something Weird video, which is a great resource. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>